Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Beth Malden, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Richard Hopkins, who is an assistant professor of history at Widener University. His research focuses on the social and cultural history of modern France, urban space, and the relationship between the individual and state authority. We'll be discussing his new book, Planning the Green Spaces of 19th Century Paris. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Beth. I want to start with your preface, where you talk about your first trip to Paris and how you discovered the beauty and the abundance of green space in the city. Could you tell us about how that first encounter planted the seed for your book? Well, I was traveling during college uh, in Europe and um, had vis- was visiting Paris for the very first time, along with other uh, locations throughout Europe. But when I got to Paris, I was really struck, as I mentioned in the preface, by the profusion of green space, parks and squares and the like all over the city, and particularly by the way in which these spaces were crowded with people and a a wide array of people from, you know, older people to young folks to children, and all engaged in different activities, picnicking, playing games, uh, walking their dogs, chatting. And it, it just really struck me that these parks were put to extraordinary use by Parisians. Um, And admittedly, I mean, I had been, as I mentioned in the preface, to parks in the U.S. and elsewhere. And of course, you see people in the parks, but there was something about the Parisian parks that just struck me as different, whether it was their number, their location all over the city, or particularly the way that Parisians seemed to take ownership over them. So that was my initial introduction to Parisian parks. Then later, much later, when I was in graduate school, I was reading about um, Napoleon III's redesign of Paris in the mid-century and Osmanization. And I learned in reading about the parks that the acreage of parks increased dramatically over a period of 12 years and then continued to increase into the Third Republic. And I thought, that's, that's so interesting. That had to have had a significant impact on the lives of ordinary Parisians who found these parks suddenly in their neighborhoods or these squares in their neighborhoods or access to them made more readily available to them. So that sort of got me thinking about um, wanting to know more about the parks and how they came about to be, but also how they were used and how they impacted the lives of Parisians. So your book begins in the mid-1800s with Napoleon III and Baron Haussmann's renovation of Paris. And of course, this is when Paris became the modern city that we know today with the wide boulevards uh, and the iconic Haussmannian buildings. And an important element of this restructuring and rebuilding was the addition of green space to the city. What were Napoleon III's goals for his renovation of Paris? And how did the construction of green space help to achieve his vision? 
Okay, so in terms of Napoleon's vision for France and for the city of Paris, in terms of rebuilding the city, um, Napoleon's vision of France was one of prosperity and civil order, coming after years of economic uh, swings and uh, unrest in form of revolution in 1830 and 1848. Uh, so this, his idea was that in order to regain France's position as a world power, it had to stabilize internally and then represent itself in a really, frankly, magnificent way on the world stage and reassert itself as a geopolitical player. So the redesign of Paris was intended to take the capital from um, the medieval, cramped, crowded, dark, dank city that it was, and create a modern, open, orderly, clean, uh, functioning, efficient European capital. Uh, so the way in which green spaces factored into this was that as part of creating this great, grand, modern capital, Public health and hygiene was a key aspect of that. Uh, there were, after the cholera epidemics uh, in the decades preceding the redesign, there was a lot of concern about health, um, contagion, all of these kinds of things. And there were concerns over poverty and the relationship between poverty and criminality. And so his idea was that, well, the whole redesign would work to deal with all of these issues and present this beautiful, wonderful grand capital to all of Europe, but also it would address some of these social issues. And the green spaces uh, were essential to that part of the vision. They facilitated leisure, certainly, and opened Paris to a burgeoning tourism market, which would bring considerable revenues into the city. And as well, it beautified the city. And he believed that it exercised a positive moral impact on what he referred to as the popular classes. And so it, with that um, positive impact uh, exercised through green spaces, civil order and morality could be assured. So that's a great segue into my next question. Napoleon III was interested in the ideas of utopian socialists of the time and his belief that civil order and morality could be brought about by green space was shaped by the Sansimonian movement, as well as the positivism of Auguste Comte. Could you explain how these two related ways of thinking influenced the creation and expansion of green space in Paris? Sure. Well, so beginning with um, Sansimonianism, uh, the Sansimonians who were following the ideas of um, Henri de Saint-Simon developed a utopian socialist vision that would suit the industrial era. Uh, they recognized that the Industrial Revolution was fundamentally changing the world economically, politically, and socially. And instead of turning away from it or rejecting it, as other utopian socialists did, and I'm thinking of the Owenites here and Fourists, they embraced industry and technological change and saw it as a means to bring about a more egalitarian society that would be built on labor and commerce. And they saw urban centers, and particularly Paris, as a crucial component, the locus of this production and exchange. But they also believed that they, they weren't um, ignoring the significant challenges in terms of sanitary challenges and hygiene and public health. But they believed that public works in particular could be marshaled to improve life in the city. And as such, they elevated 
technocrats to a certain extent um, in that vision of recreating or reconfiguring the city to support labor and commerce all toward an end of social cohesion and, and so forth. So in terms of positivism, Auguste Comte took it a step further, and his ideas and positivism became really what some would say is the preeminent philosophy of the 19th century in France, and then by extension throughout Europe. And positivists really believed in Comte in, I should say, early Comte, because later Comte, his writings later on went further, even further still than most would, uh, who were involved in the redesign of Paris, or certainly Napoleon III would have agreed to. But what he believed in was a real faith in the march of civilization and progress. And he developed the concept of three ages, which were the um, theological age, the metaphysical age, and then the positive or the scientific age, which was the 19th century, the age that they were living in at that time. And he believed that this was necessary, good, this, this development over time, moving from understanding the world theologically in terms of reference to God or metaphysically through reason and such during the Enlightenment. But the 19th century elevated science to the point that science and technology could and in fact should be used in the service of social welfare and social policy, things like population growth, health and hygiene. So positivism, the way I see it, was a kind of extraordinary faith in science tinged with a moral and historical imperative to take action and apply science and technology to solve social problems of health and civil order. So less concerned with the, the organic development of a cohesive society that the Saint-Simonians envisioned and more a directed effort to make that reality. Right. So thanks for clearing up the, the differences between those two ways of thinking. And I want to follow up on that directed effort to make these ideas a reality. And in 1856, Hausmann established what we would call a park service, the Service des Promenades et Plantations. And it was led by Adolphe Alfond. Who was Alfond and what were his ideas for the new park service? Adolphe Alfond was the son of a military colonel, I believe his rank was. He attended prestigious schools, the École Polytechnique, and upon graduation from there, he joined the, or was admitted to the Corps des Pontes et Chaussées, which is a, a civil engineering corps. He began to work. He received, I think it was his first commission in Bordeaux. He worked there under Baron Haussmann, uh, when Haussmann was a prefect there in the Gironde. And his work tended to focus there on harbor development and rail projects and, and things like that. When Haussmann was commissioned by Napoleon III to take on the redesign of Paris, he called on Adolphe Alphonse to come uh, initially specifically to address problems in, that existed in the Bois de Boulogne. He was, in many respects, everything that Haussmann was not. He was warm. He was sincere. He engendered loyalty among those who worked for him. Uh, and I should add, he was quite loyal to Ausman. He was not pretentious, whereas by all accounts, Ausman was imperious and quite pretentious and enjoyed all the trappings of power. Alfond appreciated the outdoors more than he did working in an office. He would travel to sites under construction all the time and enjoyed speaking with workers and, and that sort of thing. 
as far as his politics go, he's one of those characters in French history that it's so, it's particularly in the 19th century with so much regime change that I think it's hard to make out. We know that he had to pledge loyalty to the government of um, King Louis Philippe. By all accounts, he was he appears to have supported the empire and at least the empire's efforts at the redesign of Paris. After the republic was declared, he sent a communication to the new leadership and he explained what the Park Service had been doing and asked what his new orders would be. And they said, simply continue doing what you're doing. And then he did exactly that. He continued on in his position and he actually expanded his position. He became head of other divisions beyond just parks and gardens. He took on other Two other significant areas, the uh, the Division of Public Roads, I'm trying to translate on the fly here, and then uh, Water and Sewer in the 1870s. So he was, by the mid-1870s, he was the administrator in charge of all public works in the city of Paris. So he had a significant role to play in the way in which both the green spaces were initially established and the development program begun, and the way it played out well into the Third Republic. So I say he's one of those interesting characters uh, in terms of French history who is sort of a mid to mid-upper level um, administrator who weathers the storms of regime change. You talked about how Houseman and Alphonse had very different personalities, but they also had really different tastes in landscape design. For example, Houseman preferred the Jardin Francais, the French garden, whereas Alphonse preferred the Jardin Anglais, which is the English garden. What is the difference between the two? And why was the English style a better fit with Alphonse's philosophy? Ah, yes, absolutely. Great point, too. Okay, so um, the Jardin Francais uh, was a garden form that emerged in the 17th century, and it is um, epitomized by the work of André Le Nôtre, who was the royal gardener, uh, worked on Vol le Vicomte, uh, and then came to the attention of Louis XIV, and Louis brought him to work on the gardens at Versailles. So if you want to think of the Jardin Francais, the gardens at Versailles epitomize that. And what is that? The Jardin Francais tends to be characterized by regular and formal forms. Uh, by that I mean rectilineal paths, um, expansive vistas, parterres, uh, terraces where the the plantings of flowers are in in shapes that when you look down on it, it looks like a a carpet, an oriental carpet, topiary, water features that are um, intentionally artificial, pools and canals, ornate fountains and that sort of thing. And in the style of the Jardin Francais, there was no real attempt to recreate nature or anything natural, frankly. Rather, it was to tame nature to bring nature under control. And at Versailles, uh, Lenotre created what uh, were referred to as these outdoor rooms, right, where they could be used for different entertainments. So it was sort of imposing something quite rigid on the natural environment. Um, the emphasis was impression, right, to awe. to And that's where we get these incredible vistas. In terms of political ideology, um, the Jardin Francais has been associated with absolutism, you know, being so prominent um, uh, and favored by Louis XIV and during that period. Now, the Jardin Anglais, there is discussion about whether it's a direct response to the Jardin Francais or whether it developed, you know, on its own independently, but it was quite different from um, the Jardin Francais. 
The Jardin Anglais came about in the 18th century. It's characterized by if the forms are regular and rigid in uh, the Jardin Francais, in the Jardin Anglais, they are irregular, informal, and fluid. The paths are serpentine and looping around. Um, the water features are, even if they're constructed uh, you know, using civil engineering, they have a natural look about them with natural banks and so forth. There are rivers or brooks incorporated. The topiary certainly would be out of place. You'd want clumpings of trees that look more natural in the midst of a lawn. And even sometimes on English estates, because this was popular in England, the inclusion of livestock in various areas of the park, even if they weren't, um, even if it wasn't a functioning farm, but just for, to give the impression of this bucolic landscape. So, and, and that was often combined as well with a picturesque garden, uh, which had na- natural constructions or you know, natural, in quotation marks, constructions that would evoke the wildness of nature, cliffsides and waterfalls and those, those sorts of things. And so for the Jardin Anglais, the emphasis was on individual experience, just one wandering through the landscape and encountering various various bits of nature along the path, as opposed to having this impression presented in front of them of power and expansive view. So in as much as the Jardin Francais might be considered an articulation of absolutism in garden design, one could easily argue that the Jardin Anglais was an articulation of uh, liberalism in garden design. So what's interesting, and you bring up Ausman and Alphonse, Ausman much preferred the Jardin Francais, not surprisingly, right? Because this expression of power and control, very much in line with his way of thinking. And he he mentioned, I'll paraphrase, but in his memoirs, he mentioned that he thought that it was the that was the apex of garden design in France when these, you know, incredible gardens elevated the palaces that they surrounded, you know, and that sort of thing. And for Alphonse, Alphonse was much more interested in the experience of individual park goers, in someone wandering about. And he said at one point, or he wrote, that uh, that was one of the great delights of a park, was to see people wandering in and out of, uh, you know, clumps of trees along a path. So he was much more interested in the takeaway that park goers would experience. And he believed that particularly in, in Paris and in these smaller constructions, that that was a much more suitable form for the smaller parks and the, uh, and the squares that you could achieve more uh, with the Jardin Anglais in those tight spaces than you, than if you had a formal uh, regular garden design. The interrelationship between scientific discovery and urban planning and public health became the defining characteristic of Adolphe Alphonse's green space development plan. Planting trees, of course, was an important part of this plan. And how did trees figure into the discourse surrounding public health and the housing reform movement, especially in the wake of the cholera epidemics of 1832 and 1849? Right. Okay. So there was a tremendous interest among scientists, um, biologists, and chemists in thinking about how polluted spaces within cities could be cleansed, either polluted air or polluted soil, um, and cleansed of contagions, potential contagions, right? 
And many thinkers were uh, writing tracks about how trees effectively um, actually clean the air or whether or not they actually clean, because there was a debate about the extent to which they clean the air. There, there came to be a consensus that significant green space within a city was a good thing. It would clean the air. Um, it would shade and cool areas. It would, um, if planted correctly, I should add, it could promote the circulation of air. For the Park Service, the introduction of trees, um, not just in the parks, but also the green space considering the boulevards, the tree-lined boulevards, was a significant part of that program, was to introduce more and more trees into the urban environment in the effort to address what scientists believed was a major problem, pollution, and also believed that trees could address quite well. The problem with that was that the nature of the city made establishing mature trees there quite difficult. So what Alphon did, he established tree farms along with other things to make the whole parks development program sustainable, but certainly tree farms all around the city were an important um, development. He employed new technology in terms of bringing mature trees into the city to plant them along the boulevards and in the parks. They uh, developed very specially designed carts that could carry these trees in and then upright them and drop them down into a prepared hole. And those carts were so successful, they were used right into um, the 20th century, actually. And I should mention that you can imagine the spectacle of a massive tree coming down the street to be planted. When I read that, I, I was hoping that I could find a picture online somewhere of that. You wrote that people would just stand around and watch because it was such a sight. Right, right. It, I think I've only seen one photograph of it. But yes, it was quite a show. And it, it, was, it spoke to this trust in technology, this reliance on civil engineering, that we don't have to wait for trees to grow. We can grow mature trees outside the city and bring them in and plant them in prepared holes, and they will be more likely to succeed. The Park Service also developed things for when they did have to use younger trees to protect them from damage, protect their roots. They would put a tree, what are called tree grates around the base of them. You've seen them, I think, if you've walked in a city, iron grates. And also what were, uh, I don't know what the English term for them, would, but they're corsets, effectively, that iron cages that would go around the tree to protect it when it was younger from being damaged by being hit by you know, a carriage or, or what have you. Uh, that's thinking about along the, um, the boulevards there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they, they use the London plane tree for a, a particular reason. Why, why would they choose that species as opposed to others? Yeah, the London plane was a, a hybrid. It was developed between, um, and I hope I get this right, <laughs> for my horticulturalist friends. The, I believe it was the American sycamore and the eastern or the oriental plane tree. It was used to great effect in London, where it was very hard to find trees that could survive in the heavily polluted air. When Alphonse the Park Service was looking at introducing trees in the parks and lining the boulevards, the London tree looked like a really good option because they had tried other species that didn't do as well as the London plane. And the reason Back to your question, the reason that the London Plain did well is that it would periodically slough off its bark 
And if you think about what a sycamore tree looks like, and you can imagine this, and so the pollutants that would adhere to the bark and potentially harm the tree would be periodically sloughed off. Uh, and also it had very, very large leaves. And so that ties back into this argument that um, tree respiration, if you will, cleanses the air. The Park Service also encountered challenges related to the management of wildlife like fish and ducks, especially in the larger spaces like the Bois de Bologna. What were some of these problems and how were they resolved? Right. Well, there's very early on, um, and I should mention the Bois de Boulogne was the first of the um, renovations. It existed as Royal Forest, but it was renovated uh, very early on in the program. So a lot of, one might think the kinks were worked out in the Bois de Boulogne and then applied as policy in other parts throughout the city or the systems that were put in place. And one of the things that happened in the Bois de Boulogne was that waterfowl populated the space ducks and other kinds of waterfowl. And there's a wonderful report from the chief horticulturalist, uh, Berrier Deschamps, and he's writing to um, Alphonse, he's saying, we've spent all this money, you know, installing these beautiful plants along the, the, the lakeside, and every day these ducks attack them and eat them, we have to stop this. He recommended calling in hunters, and he said that uh, a good hunt would scare them off for good, you know, it would kill most of them and scare them off for good. Well, the park conservator took issue uh, with that, and he said, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Parkgoers love these birds. They love to go to the lakeside and feed them. And, and he even said at one point that he believed that it had become a necessity for the park to have these. So the park started to explore different ways to manage this, this growing um, population of ducks that were destroying expensive plant life that had to be replaced. So they um, initially thought to contract someone to come in and both feed the ducks to support the population and then call the, call the flock, if you will, right? And I shouldn't say flock because there were many varieties of waterfowl. And initially it was thought that the park service would pay his expenses for the food. And then they, they thought to allow him to take some of the ducks and sell them in the central market um, or the waterfowl. And that wasn't working out because as the number grew and grew and grew, it became less profitable for this man to do it. And so he came back to the park service and he said, you know, this isn't working out. I'm not making enough money. And so the park service came up with a couple of other different solutions. One was that they would allow him to take some deer, which was another population that was growing in the park, to augment what he would earn, the profits he would earn from sale of the waterfowl, and that would hopefully take care of the expense of the feeding. But that that didn't work out as well for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is that the market price fluctuated and the expense continued to grow for uh, this contractor. So what the service did, I, I guess the, the key point here is what the service decided to do was take on, take on full control over wildlife management in the Bois de Boulogne, both the, the deer herd and the um, duck population or the waterfowl population, and then hire this contractor and pay him directly and then hope to recoup the expense of that through their own sale of these resources. And that became really a model where initially they were trying to sort of contract these things out and then increasingly the Park Service had to take on 
this kind of management and come up with systems and policies for how to manage it and hope to regain some of the cost, some of the expense of doing that, either through sale or there were other things they did to help make the parks revenue producing. Later on, the Park Service had to deal with the devastation left behind by the Franco-Prussian War and the siege of Paris in 1870. Could you describe the environmental damage to the parks caused by the war? Sure. In terms of the environmental damage, during the siege, beginning during the siege, I I should say, trees both in the large parks, the Bois de Boulogne and the uh, Bois de Vincennes, and increasingly along the boulevards as necessary, were being cut down and used for fuel. So many of these large mature trees that had been brought in and planted were being used out of necessity for fuel. Also, these resources like fish in the ponds and the waterfowl and so forth, those were also culled to support the population during the siege and then later during the commune. So the environmental impact on the parks was significant in terms of both the flora and the fauna and the damage to it, as well as the bombardment, because there were structures within the parks, areas of the park that uh, were damaged during the bombardment, both of the siege and then when there was fighting between government troops and the communards. Uh, significantly, the penultimate stance of the communards was in the uh, Parc de Bouchamont, and um, there was tremendous damage there. And in fact, in the days after um, the, the fall of the commune, there were corpses that filled the lake uh, at the Parc de Bouchamont and just remained there. And citizens, you know, asking to the, the city to please take these out of here. You know, this is just a horrible horrifying thing to see and also completely unhealthy. So tremendous physical damage, damage to the plant life and the population that had to be replaced. And by the way, after uh, the commune was all over and they and they were working to uh, replenish the trees and the forests, the woods in the large parks and in the smaller parks, they had to resort to smaller saplings, which they had not done in the past. And they even, in certain cases, they began to pull trees or you know dig up trees that were mature, more mature, from cemeteries around the city and move them to the parks in order to have, you know, something that uh, was more aesthetically pleasing and functioned better in those spaces. So switching gears a little bit here. Um, I want to talk about prostitution now. (laughs) So the presence of prostitutes in the parks, of course, caused conflict and tension. And before we we get to that, how was prostitution dealt with under the Third Republic? Right. Well, throughout the 19th century, um, there had been a beginning mid-century. There was a policy of um, regulation of prostitution. And from the Second Empire through to the Third Republic, it it changed somewhat in its nature, but it was basically a regulationist stance toward prostitution. The idea was that prostitution could not be fully eliminated. It was sort of this necessary evil of society. And so the best thing to do in terms of regulation early on was to contain it and keep it away from public view. And so during the Second Empire, you had the establishment of the Maison de Tolerance, which were brothels. 
and that they were designed to keep prostitutes and prostitution away from public view. Later on, during the Third Republic, and it sort of coincided with um, Josephine Butler's push in England, and, and she also visited France, you know, taking issue with the regulation of prostitution as being cruel, actually, to women and privileging uh, men and so forth. And so Regulation didn't change entirely. You still had licensed brothels, but the concerns from visibility of prostitution changed to health and hygiene concerns in terms of the spread of venereal disease. So the brothels were far more regulated, and women who lived in the brothels were subjected to physical examinations and that sort of thing toward the turn of the century. Well, in in your book, you tell this story about two women who were arrested for prostitution. And, and this was actually one of the fears of the bourgeois women who would go to visit the parks, that they would be mistaken for women of ill repute. Um, how did the guards identify these two women as prostitutes in the first place? Yes, it's a, it's a funny story, actually. So many of these, actually, as I was doing the research, I would be reading these things and, you know, you can't help but smile at the way that they're recorded or recounted. Well, these two young women, they wanted to enjoy the Bois de Boulogne, and they had rented horses, as anyone might do, but they were sighted riding in a, in what was reported to be an extravagant way. And what that meant was that their skirts were riding up to and even over the knee at time. And so that uh, tipped off authorities that perhaps these were not um, proper women. Right. And a funny addition to that is the guy who rented them the horses got in trouble because you're not supposed to rent horses to drunk people. So... Right, right, right. Because they were, I should have added that. Yeah, they were inebriated. And, um, and they readily gave their address as the brothel. But the brothel across town, uh, near the Jardin de Luxembourg, what's sort of interesting about it is their crime was that they were outside of the confines of the Maison de Tolerance. And being in this space where they may, as you, as you rightly note, encounter a bourgeois woman who might be forced to, you know, actually view this kind of behavior, which would be an affront to her. Right. So speaking of bourgeois women, mothers, whenever the Park Service was redesigning the parks and the squares, they often considered the needs and desires of mothers who took their children there to play. And the mothers would actually petition the park officials to make these physical changes to the parks. Could you talk about some of these changes that were made to meet the needs of these families? Sure. Well, it's worth noting that one of the central rationales for the development of the parks uh, and squares throughout Paris and the expense of them was increasingly children's health and welfare. So children played a central role, actually, in the expansion or the needs of children, I should say. And that empowered mothers in a particular way. In one instance, in the Parc Montelon, it was designed in the Jardin Anglais style. There was a central waterfall rock feature with a small pond and such. And mothers it from the uh, area, from the neighborhood, would bring their children there to play during the day. Now, it was also surrounded by businesses, hotels, and other businesses that relied on tourism. And the mothers came to fear that the that central water feature, the pond and the um, 
cascade would be would endanger the lives of their children they believed you know not only might it, their child fall into it and hurt themselves but also this fear that um there were unhealthy emanations coming from that water that it would be stagnant at times and that that would be release these um miasmas into the neighborhood. And so that was dangerous. And so they petitioned the park service to remove it entirely. And the business owners and the hotel owners got wind of this and and thought, well, wait a minute, this is really good for our business. <laughs> we don't want you to remove it. Um, this is an attraction for you know our our guests. And so it went back and forth. But ultimately, uh, the Park Service weighed in on the side of the mothers because they determined that the, the population that the park or the square served that was greater was that population of mothers with children. And that was an unassailable argument on the part of the mothers to protect the health and welfare of their children. And so the Park Service, at great expense, completely removed the central water feature, the rock structure was left in place but the fountain or the waterfall removed and then a, a central play area established there for the children with benches and and so forth so the mothers could sit and watch in your last chapter you look at the bois de boulogne as an example of negotiated space where you see different social classes seeking to lay claim to the park how did parisian high society the haute bourgeoisie try to claim the park as their own private space? And how is that exclusivity challenged by other social groups? Well, so early on uh, in the redesign of the Bois de Boulogne, the, and, and I should note that the Bois de Boulogne is located in, an, in a very wealthy, the wealthy side of Paris, in the west of Paris. Early on, there were a few establishments that sought to assure kind of exclusivity of the space. Uh, there was the, the racetrack uh, at Longchamp on the far end of the park, the far western end of the park. And that was established by the Jockey Club, which was a kind of a breeder's club, a racing club. The Jockey Club was granted a lease on the land and um, constructed grandstands for uh, the purpose of watching races there. And admission to those grandstands required that you be a member of the jockey club. And the jockey club was made up of landed, uh, wealthy individuals or industrialists who claim long bloodlines in France and that sort of thing. And then also princes of the royal, of the imperial family, ministers in the government, officers in the military and so forth. So that, in order to access that space, you had to be part of that group. Now, on Sundays, when there were races, people from all over Paris came and installed themselves on the opposite side of the racetrack on a, on a hill overlooking it. So they too could enjoy the races as they liked. So the haute bourgeoisie were able to maintain control over the grandstand, but they couldn't prevent these other people from entering the park and enjoying this entertainment as much as they were. Another example of the exclusivity of the space was something known as the Tour de Lac, which was a practice of taking a carriage ride or a horse ride, a practice by elites in Paris, I should say, down from the Arc de Triomphe, uh, down what was the Avenue L'Imperatrice, now Avenue Foch, into the Bois de Boulogne and around the lake several times, circuits around the lake, and all in an effort to see and be seen. It, it was what you what uh, a person of society was expected to do, was to make the tour of the Tour de Lac every day, and it happened at four o'clock in the afternoon. 
And it was quite a scene by all accounts. Uh, we have traveler accounts who, travelers accounts who tell us about how extravagant and luxurious these carriages were and the dress and extraordinary uh, accoutrement and livery and so forth. But that too began to be challenged on Sundays in particular by folks from all over the city of Paris who would come and along that route would set themselves up and have a picnic. And they were, one observer referred to them as the honest population of Sunday. Which I, I love that expression, right? Petite bourgeois, uh, they were working class. And, and some ob- observers said that they had absolutely no interest in what was going on. They weren't there to watch the Tour de l'Arc. They were there to enjoy the space on their own terms and have their picnic. But the elites who frequented and participated in the Tour de l'Arc came to resent this intrusion and took to avoiding the tour on Sundays so that they would not have to encounter their lessers, if you will. But that's early on in the, in the redesign of the Bois de Boulogne, those efforts. Um, and as part of one of those early efforts, there was the installation of what's called the Cirque de Patineur, which was a skating club. Like the Jockey Club, this was a private club that had an installation for skating in an area of the park that was sort of secluded and away from the main paths. It was fenced. It was surrounded by a fence. It was reserved for the emperor and effectively the court. Observers, you know, uh, recounted that it was effectively an extension of the Palais de Tuileries. That uh, it was the, the palace and the court coming to the park, um, and that caused a lot of pushback from many who felt that the park should be fully public and this enclosure that was private just for the use of this skating club was unfair, and. This was at a time when skating was becoming really, really popular, um, partly because of the Cirque de Patineur and the emperor and empress's interest in it, but also because it was an activity that anyone could participate in. You didn't really need to have a lot of equipment. It didn't cost anything. You could just go to the lakes, and the lakes in the Guadalupe became a really favored place for uh, skating. Even at that the wealthy in this area, elites, the haute bourgeoisie, sought to carve out spaces of exclusivity on the lake itself. There was a terrible, tragic accident in the early 1860s where several people died as a result of drowning when the ice uh, collapsed. In the wake of that, there was several reports were developed and submitted about safety on the lake, about what what the park service could do to uh, you know make sure that skating was safer, you know, having rescue crews and equipment and that sort of thing, and all of those things were recommended to be implemented uh, to prevent the same kind of thing happening in the future. And in one of those reports, the conservator of the park, Pissot, uh, mentioned that he had been approached by some very wealthy Parisians who were upset at the fact that they had to skate on the lake. They were clearly not uh, high enough in the pecking order to be part of the Cirque de Patineur. So they were at the lakes, and they didn't like the idea that they had to skate alongside of uh, the rest of Paris. And so what they recommended uh, or asked for was a, was a cordoning off of a section of the ice, which they would maintain and for which they would pay a rent. They would effectively lease part of the lake. And Pizot, the conservator said in his report, I don't think that's a a bad idea. He thought it would be kind of a good thing and it would produce some revenue and the revenue could go to help out workers for the park service. 
And this is where one of those instances where we see Alphonse step in and really push back. And he, in the report, physically crossed out the entire section on this uh, that had contained the idea of cordoning off the ice. And there is a notation in the margin, but as I mentioned in the book, it's illegible. So we can't, we can't know exactly what he said, and we don't have any communication between him and Pizot about this. But knowing Alphonse and knowing his insistence on open and free access to all spaces within the park, or as many as possible um, for the Parisian populace, it's easy to understand that he would have had a conversation with Pizot about that. And I think as evidence of that, I also mentioned that within a very short time, uh, Pizot was approached again by a gentleman who wanted to, who was complaining that there weren't enough benches around the lake for skaters to lace their skates. And he thought it would be a good idea if women of society had a private space, a tent for themselves alone. Uh, along the bank side so that they could lace their skates in private. And Pizot pushed back forcefully against this and said, absolutely not, we can't have this. And, and so it's such a, such a change from his earlier comment to Alphonse that, oh, this, is a, we, this could be a good idea, cordoning off the ice. And now, just a few months later, he's saying, oh, absolutely not. We cannot have you know, ostentatious spaces of exclusivity in a public park. It will not do. Well, that, that brings me to our conclusion. In the, the final chapter of your book, you talk about uh, the impact that Adolfo found the Paris Park Service, and the people who use the parks in different ways. You talk about how they made an impact in terms of our thinking about the relationship between nature and the urban environment. And I'd like to wrap up our conversation with this. How do we still feel the presence of this movement around green space in the 19th century, not just in France, but around the world? I think that the, the, the impact and the legacy, if you will, of park development in the 19th century in Paris and in Europe and then around the world is to say that green space is essential, necessary and essential to the quality of life in large, crowded urban centers. And that, you know, municipal governments absolutely must commit to developing and maintaining those green spaces for the use of an eager public, frankly, that has, uh, you know, only access to nature or the natural world um, through leaving the city, going outside to the rural areas in the countryside. The, the, the Parisian park development and the way in which Parisians responded to it really speaks to this idea that uh, in the modern city, Green space and access to it had to be a consideration for any modern city worth its salt. And even today, we see examples all over of reclaiming areas. In Chicago, I think there's a railway park, right, where an, where an abandoned railway was turned into a park to create additional green space, or the High Line in New York City, where trying to construct nature in the urban environment, because we believe that it does contribute to improving quality of life 
And that's really, that was so much of the argument of the green space development was that it, it improved, it enhanced urban living, quality of life and health and welfare. So Richard, before we end, I have to ask you this one last question. What is your favorite green space in Paris? Ah, <laughs> I, I always get that question. Well, I would say that, that uh, I'll, the cheeky answer is I don't have one. They're all wonderful. And they all are in their own way because I see differently, right? Each one has something to offer that's special and, and unique to that space. But I think if I were pressed, absolutely pressed, I would have to say the Parc des Bouchermont. It's its creation is a fascination to me in that it was created in this underdeveloped working class area, annexed recently annexed to Paris, which had very little infrastructure. And then the investment of the city in this in creating this incredible park and utilizing Herculean efforts in terms of civil engineering to make it a reality in this working class area. I find that background fascinating. And then the way in which by by all accounts, the population of the area there around the park really embraced it and, and it functioned so well for them in terms of uh, improving life in that area because it, it had the area had actually been a dump. Uh, it had uh, been it was a haunt for criminals and so forth. And so renovating it and then turning it over to the population in that way, I think was marvelous. I completely agree with you. I, that is one of my favorite parks. It also has this dark history where that's that's where the gibbet was. Right. And then after that, it became a quarry. And then they used to throw animal carcasses in there and the trash of the city. Right. And to be able to turn that space into that beautiful park is, is just incredible. Right, right. I agree 100%. Well, Richard, you've written a great book. I encourage everyone to read it. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much, Beth. So we've been talking with Richard Hopkins about his new book, Planning the Green Spaces of 19th Century Paris. Thanks for listening to New Books and History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. <laughs>